Curtis, it's like our disaster recovery playbooks. They it looks like they had a playbook around what to do in case they see this. We got to bring IT in at some point. <laughs> <laughs> but it's important to be prepared, you know. Hi, and welcome to Backup Central's Restore It All podcast. I'm your host, W. Curtis Preston, a.k.a. Mr. Backup. We are here on week four of our coronavirus coverage, which means that uh, I am joined by sheltered-in-place Prasanna Maliandi. How's it going, Prasanna? I swear, I think I'm bouncing off the walls here. It's only <laughs> been like week two, I believe. But yeah, it's going a little crazy. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I enacted a few weeks ago, I enacted a new personal rule, which says if I'm on the phone, I'm walking. So if, if, how yeah. many steps are you doing a day? Uh, I have gotten as high as 20,000 steps in wow. a day. My, me- <laughs> You're my minimum. You're quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. My minimum for the last two weeks has been 10,000 steps a day. But Good I have, job, I, Curtis. Typically, I'm in, the, I'm in the 12 to 13. But if I have a rough day, if I have a lot of phone calls, uh, then I'm up and I, I've actually, I think my highest, I think I got was 22,000. So, That's but I'm doing, right. you should keep doing it all right. Yeah. Um, and then last night I might've had a couple of beers. <laughs> <laughs> only a couple. Uh, only a couple. I did get a little drunk there anyway. Uh, so I, you know, I know I often say, Hey, I'm excited to have our special guest," and I always am excited to have a guest, but today I think it's extra special because, Persona and I only know so much and we can only get what we understand from, you know, from this. We scratch the surface. We scratch the surface. What we wanted to have was someone who could speak authoritatively on this, uh, this horrible thing that's going on right now, the coronavirus COVID-19. And we found someone. Uh, she has an MD from Cornell and an MPH, which is a master's in public health from Columbia in 2012, which means that she was in medical school during the H1N1 uh, swine flu uh, epidemic back uh, in 2009. She now studies harms reduction, which means that she helps uh, governments weigh the risks and benefits of various public policies, which is a fascinating uh, idea. And just to make her even more interesting, she's also a Jeopardy champion, having won uh, over $100,000 back in 2019, and she made it into the uh, the latest Tournament of Champions, where she did make it to the semifinals, but then she got wholesoured. And so welcome <laughs> to the podcast, Lindsay Schultz, MD, MPH. Thank you for having me. Welcome, Lindsay. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, we are. We are excited. We have so many questions, so many that we <laughs> sent them to you in writing. And it is exciting to talk to other human beings. <laughs> oh, it, yeah. You're you're also sheltered in place. Where do you actually live? I, I am in Pittsburgh, but I am sheltering at my mom's place about 45 minutes south of the city. So there's a lot of open space, but it's just me and my mom and my brother and the plants. Well, that's that's probably are you bouncing off the walls yet. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit, but you do have a very nice airport there in, in Pittsburgh, as I recall. It it is lovely. They have redecorated it in a lovely fashion. They made a giant transformer statue out of all the bridges oh, really? of the city for when you you arrive. Whoa, that's awesome. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Um yeah, I I've I've flown 
I've been to pitch. I used to live in um, uh, Delaware, and uh, I, w- I worked at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard back a really long time ago. <laughs> and uh, back when it was called the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard. So mm-hmm. that just gives you a, a, a time frame. So I do know how to say skookle um, and, um, you know, things like that. And I have attended a Mummer's Day Parade, ah. which, um, which, you know, that is, for those of you that don't know about that, that is a really unique Philadelphia tradition. Uh, and very strange, but you know, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of fun. So, uh, so there's a lot of information going around about this and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of misinformation as well. This being coronavirus or COVID-19. Yes. 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 About the coronavirus. Um, uh, first off, what, what is a coronavirus? Why do we call it the coronavirus? Okay. Um, basically, it's it's a family of viruses. We have we've identified seven of them so far. Um, four of them are just viruses that call are are called rhinoviruses that just cause the common cold every year. So you're not surprised to see those show up in people. They cause you know mild disease and go away. They have a seasonal pattern. You know we sort of we know what to do with those. Um, the three other ones we have identified. And we put them all in this coronavirus family because when you look at them under a microscope, the the proteins, the receptors sitting on the surface, um, according to some people, not not everyone who's looked at it, say they look like little crowns. Okay. So they went with coronavirus to name it for this this distinctive looking receptor on the top. Gotcha. So it wasn't named after the beer. It was actually the <laughs> crown. It was not. Um, I'm, I'm sure there are derivative of the same you know latin root but right no you you do know you do know that there's a reduction in business for corona beer right now i I did not know that i did know that there's this weird spike in a company called zoom that has nothing to do with the actual (laughs) zoom company that we're all using now i did hear about that in the new york stock exchange actually suspended the trading of that because people got confused because the ticker was zoom but it was intended for Zoom technologies rather than ZM, which is for Zoom, the video conferencing. <laughs> uh, yeah, that is yeah. interesting. Yeah, there was actually a survey, by the way, uh, and 30% of the Americans surveyed said they would, under no circumstances, drink Corona beer because of the <laughs> coronavirus. I'm not making this up. Uh, so, like I said, misinformation. So, SARS, MERS, and H1N1, aka swine flu, are those okay. coronaviruses? So, H1N1 is it's a flu virus. It's similar okay. to every other seasonal influenza that you could get. Okay. Um, all of them come with that H and a number, the N and a number attached. That again okay. are like those sort of surface proteins that let them bind to receptors. And the reason that, uh, you know, we don't have a universal flu vaccine yet is unlike these coronaviruses, these new ones that we found that have jumped from animals recently into people, the flu viruses have been circulating between birds and mammals and people for ages. Okay. So this, this H and this N can swap back and forth the subtype they have almost every year or mutate a little bit or change. So like the virus you have in, you know, in 2018 is not exactly the same as the virus you're seeing in 2019, is not exactly as the virus you're seeing in 2020. Is that why so, you have to constantly get like an updated flu vaccine or a yep. flu shot every year just to yep. try to get that? 
Yep. So they're they're working on universal vaccines for that. They're trying to find, you know, spots on those those H receptors or those N receptors that don't really change. But mm. it's tough. It's tough. So um, so like the yeah. H1N1 was it was one of those H's and N's they swapped. So you've got, you know, an, you know, the H that kind of looks like it's coming from, you know, from a pig somewhere, which is, you know, where it got the name. The first cases of it they saw were in Mexico. Um, you know, and then spread up through the U.S. and eventually went worldwide. But it's a different pattern that you expect to see and something that we have a little bit more information as to how to prepare for because it does follow that typical flu pattern, you know, which is why they were able to stand up a vaccine, you know, as opposed to now we're talking 12 to 18 months because this is a new virus, a new vaccine they're trying to put up. The flu vaccine for H1N1 I think the first major cases were found in April. They had the vaccine ready to go in about November, around the time they do the, the normal flu vaccines. Right. So we've never seen a coronavirus before or something like this in the past? We we have those these three incidents of the SARS in 2003, MERS in, I think, 2012, 2013, and now this particular coronavirus are the first time that we've seen the, this specific pattern jump into people that, you know, in 2003, they think it was, you know, st- it started in a bat, probably, you know, like I said, flus can sort of mix in animals, mix in birds. This probably mixed in a mammal. In 2003, they think it might have been a civet cat in those those sort of open air markets in China. It might have been a what? A, a civet cat. I believe if you look at them, they look sort of like skunks, but they're they're a typical um, animal to find in those markets. And, you know, and it took at that time probably a year of genetic investigation to sort of, you know, test all of these animals and see what viruses were similar. All of these fall into what I believe I believe in our pre talks, you use the term zoo viruses, right? They're, so the term, the general term is a zoonotic virus. Oh, zoonotic. Okay. So these are viruses that jump from animals into people. And there's some that, you know, you, I guess you could call the flu, you know, a zoonotic virus in that it does cycle back and forth, but it's these new introductions that the human, human immune system just isn't prepared for and doesn't have experience with that cause huge problems. Um, Even something like HIV, we would have characterized as, you know, a zoonotic virus because it passed from, you know, chimpanzees probably in the 30s in Cameroon into people. And, you know, you're looking at one introduction, maybe a few introductions, and then it can take off like that because the human immune system doesn't know what to do with it. And so you you mentioned uh, the swine flu, and I think I remember you saying something that that there was some immunity. That's what I remember reading is that there were that actually the it it was it was a weird it was weird in that it it disproportionately impacted younger people because it it seemed like older people had more of an immunity because of this cycle that you talked about does that sound right right so it it what it was their best educated guess was was older people at some point in time, and I can't remember the specific years they were looking at, but there had been other flu viruses similar to this one mm-hmm. that had cycled through the system. So, you know, maybe you got exposed to this virus as a kid, your immune system could set up its memory cells, you know, to remember this virus better than a young person that hadn't seen, you know, these particular, this H and this N before. 
um, which gave you some protection. You know, I, I don't think there was there was some talk about, you know, if someone was old enough, would the Spanish flu um, or the flu epidemic in 1918, which was also an H1N1, have given you some protection? And I mean, and the answer is it might have. You know, immunity right. can wait over time. They would have been really old. Yeah. I mean, though, I, I did. I was reading articles today. They're, they're talking about a couple of people in Italy that have now both survived the uh, flu epidemic in 1919 and the coronavirus epidemic in 2020. Wow. That's impressive. So we're, we're looking at a couple of those cases. So, I mean, the answer is always for something that long lived, you know, your immunity wanes over time. That's why you have to do things like it. Boosters for vaccines, things like that. But I do remember that sort of being passed around as an idea. Also being passed around as an idea of one of the reasons that H1N1 sort of caught on as being so scary because, you know, that that Spanish flu outbreak in 1918 is sort of the, you know, the hallmark one that you you put up as. Hallmark with a small H. Yes. <laughs> um, it's it's interesting because I know yeah, you just right. mentioned that swine flu was thought of as being super scary, but people seem to have forgotten about that. Yeah. So let's talk about how many people were infected in the in world in the U.S. with swine flu. Okay. Let me double check my numbers. H1N1. So there's going to be a difference in how I say numbers here. When I say a confirmed case... That means literally someone was infected, they took the swab, they sent it to the lab, they got the genetics. Okay. And that was maybe 18,000, 19,000. The estimates are somewhere between 150 and 600,000. And and why the big difference there? Um, Because even more so than now, we would have had, you know, less testing capabilities. Hmm. We would have had less people with mild symptoms, you know, likely to go and be tested, they would have just said, oh, you know, it's it's the seasonal flu. It is what it is. It's fine. You know, and it's a similar pattern to what we're looking at when we're trying to figure out numbers, even with the coronavirus of a lot of those asymptomatic or mild cases just aren't in our data yet. You know, uh, so until you can do something like serological testing or, you know, take sort of a backward retrospective glance and you know, attempt to estimate who all had it, you're sort of, you're just working with what you have. Gotcha. Because I, I, I also read, I remember reading, I forgot exactly where, but I remember one, and it might've been the CDC, it was definitely a governmental entity making the recommendation, don't bother testing people unless a positive result would result in a difference in their treatment. Right. Like they, they were less concerned with with confirming, you know, the you know, the virus as they were just properly treating people. Right. And I mean, and the reason you're doing that is, you know, unlike some of the, you know, the smaller countries, whether you're talking Taiwan or South Korea, you know, Hong Kong, Singapore, that tested and had tests available quickly enough that you could identify someone who was positive, you know, isolate them, check all of their contacts, isolate them if need be, and sort of evaluate, you know, your your epidemic that way. Um, we sort of missed the boat on that. And given that we still haven't quite ramped up testing to where it should be, you want to make sure testing is available for, you know, a a healthcare worker who may have been exposed, um, someone who may have underlying conditions, um, you know, like asthma, COPD, that if they have coronavirus, they can decompensate, meaning they can get worse really quickly. So you want to test them for that. Or if it's, you know, someone who works, say, in a nursing home, 
or worked with other, you know, vulnerable populations that they could take this virus to even if they're not symptomatic until the tests are, you know, readily available. They they did advise pulling back a little bit because the goal is that we're not trying to catch every single person and every single exposure. Now we're just trying to limit the damage. Mm-hmm. Now, so, it just uh, uh, sorry, I was just going to ask okay. two questions. One was, um, is it also because swine flu wasn't as contagious as the coronavirus? Um. So there, the number you would be looking for here is the R not. Which essentially that means it's it's just if you have, you know, one, you know, one patient you're looking at, you're saying, what is the average number of other people this person will infect? You know, and these these numbers range a lot. If you're looking at something super contagious like measles, that's anywhere from 12 to 16, meaning wow. one case of the measles can infect 16 other people, which wow. is why, you know, we're we try to be so aggressive about you know, trying to make sure that everyone has their measles vaccines up to date because this is something that can spread so easily. Um, but then you're, if you're looking at like the seasonal flu, the number might be like 1.3, 1.5, meaning not that many. And H1N1 was about in that ballpark, about, you know, 1.2 to 1.6. So you weren't infecting a lot of other people from each, you know, individual case. Um, with yeah. coronavirus, we're not, we're not 100% sure what it is yet. Because this does vary based on, you know, where you're testing, what population, how, how good is your medical care, um, you know, how, how good is your health. It's probably somewhere between two and three. Okay. And it seems like the only way to really figure out what the value is, is you'd have to do testing at a large enough scale to understand what the actual rates are, right? Right, right. So so it's these are sort of ballparking there. You know, so so they're going off a lot of, you know, the first... First case studies coming out of Wuhan, you know, what did those populations look like? Sort of building data off that. Um, another data set people are using is there was the Diamond Princess cruise ship that was one of the first cruise ships to see a big outbreak of this that right. you essentially had, you know, for better or worse, a captive population that you could see how much it was spreading, you know, and how how severe different cases were, how it presented in different ages. So you're you're piecing together this different information and, you know, you're going to have some different data from, you know, what the outbreak looked like in China versus what it looks like here versus what it looks like in Italy to try to piece together what those numbers might be. A layperson, right, looking at that, they, they might not even really just sort of, real, let, let's just say it's three, right? Mm-hmm. But three doesn't sound that far from one and a half. Um, is there another way, like, because I know, isn't, is the is the rate at which it's spreading amongst the population is that rate looking at that does that look better similar different uh than the swine flu for example so it's hard to quite compare to the swine flu because of just the different characteristics between like you know the flu virus itself and these coronaviruses um a comparison i can draw is from that SARS in 2003. Okay. So the SARS in 2003, um, you know, had a similar or not, you know, when I say like, you know, it's two, maybe three, maybe four, somewhere in that range. Mm-hmm. Um, but the big advantage might not be quite the right word. That version of SARS was not communicable. You could not spread it person to person until the the person was showing symptoms. Mm. Meaning you're already, you know, showing your cough, your shortness of breath, 
um, which means a lot of that those cases of SARS were actually spread, you know, within hospitals because it's someone who, you know, one person comes in with SARS. If you're not exactly careful with your hygiene, it can spread to somebody else. And then mm-hmm. that's sort of how it gets spread. That's interesting because I, I, I what I read again, I'm just, I'm just reading I, I, all the stuff you learned in medical <laughs> school. Stressing I'm out reading, right? Yeah. But uh, my understanding was that the R not value takes into account things like how long you're infectious before you're symptomatic. And it sounds like if SARS was, you said, close to three, uh, and this is, we're thinking is around three, it would seem like they would be similarly contagious, but that doesn't sound like they are. Right. So what what we're looking at is you now have a virus that is spread before the patient is showing symptoms. Um, we don't know exactly how many days. The average is you're infected maybe four to six days before you start showing symptoms. You're infectious, maybe the most infectious in you know the the day before, the day and a half before you start showing symptoms. So unlike SARS, where you could immediately see a case, you know, know a patient might be infected, isolate them right away. With this, what we're seeing is, you know, there's someone who was exposed two weeks ago, could be walking around, potentially um, passing this on to other people. Um, We don't have great numbers on what percentage that is. I've seen anything in the range from 30% to 50% of spread is by asymptomatic carriers or patients that are asymptomatic before they've actually gotten symptoms. So this means it's much, much harder to sort of nail down, you know, here's a case, we need to isolate this person, find their contacts. In addition, unlike SARS, so if you got SARS, what what were your, because most of the people with, um, with uh, COVID-19 are relatively not, they're not that, the, the symptoms aren't that severe. What's, were they? What were they like with SARS? Right. So one of the differences that they've been able to, and again, the fact that science is, is the science is able to move so much faster now, even than compared to when I was in college. Um, when, so I was in college when the SARS 2003 epidemic happened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had within, you know, two weeks, I think, of, of the coronavirus being identified, the entire genetic code. And one of the differences that you're able to see in this particular virus is it, it has some mutations that let it sort of lock onto a cell a little bit easier, but it also has this new piece to it that almost acts like a grappling hook that lets it just grab onto that cell and pull itself in. And because it has this sort of new array of weaponry to get into the cell, even though there's a receptor for it is called ACE2, just to... Be able to use a shorthand for the original SARS in 2003 because it didn't have these these advantages to get into the cell. It took it not um, just being exposed to your upper airway. It had to make it all the way down into your lungs before it started causing disease. So what you're looking at with that original SARS is most people having severe pneumonias, um, you know, severe severe um, pulmonary presentation which is similar to the more severe cases of the coronavirus. But because it has these advantages, it's able to, to latch onto cells in your, your upper airways, which is why when they're doing those tests, they're, it's swabbing you know, sort of your nasal 
area. Yeah, I, w- I watched the test. It did not look very comfortable. <laughs> it did not. Um, and I and I <laughs> and I have heard that they they're they're working on making it so it's it's more like a normal flu test would be, but they're it's still iffy how well they can grab that. But it's right. because that the virus can now sort of grab on and adhere to those upper airways that it's mm-hmm. way easier to sort of just get infected with it and sort of have it you know, perhaps stay those more mild symptoms in your upper airways as opposed to just being diseased in your lower airways. So if I could summarize sort of what we've set up to this point is it sounds like there's a longer period of time during which this, again, comparing it with SARS, uh, during which it this disease can, I'm sorry, an infected person can infect others before they even know they're sick. In fact, I've heard, you know, reports from lots of people who get this and don't even really know they have it, yeah. right? That, that they, they don't even know they have uh, COVID-19. They just, they just have, they think they have the flu or whatever. In fact, uh, I actually watched some footage of a CBS person who's uh, in, in Italy and he tested positive and he, he said he's had, he's had uh, flus and colds that were way worse than what he's experiencing. So you have this person who could be infected for two weeks, it seems like, and walking around just shedding the virus right. and infecting other people without even knowing it. And is that common in a lot of these? Like, I don't know about swine flu or SARS, but is it common to have people who are showing such a range of symptoms? Yes and no. I think it's the severity of the cases. It's the fact that it goes from so very mild to so very severe is surprising. And we really don't have a great answer for why yet. Um, You know, it varies with age. You know, that sort of makes sense. It varies with if you've had an underlying, you know, lung condition or you have high blood pressure, heart disease, liver disease, you do worse. So those are sort of things you expect with almost any, any disease that you have. But it also seems like men are doing worse. Bummer. (laughs) Well, we had we had a good run. (laughs) um you know some of the thought was you know well maybe like in china men are much more likely to be smokers than women so that might account for some of it um but then even if you look at at kids who are infected and again kids can get infected most don't show severe symptoms but again there's this 60 40 male female split that you wouldn't expect as much if it's completely you know a a, a, an underlying, you know, I've been exposed to smoke or I've worked in a factory or something like that. Hmm. So the answer is we really don't know. Um, we don't know if there's some, you know, immune difference. Um, we don't know if in the general population there's an, an immunity difference that some people are getting more mild versions and other people aren't. Um, we're just, you know, this. Yeah. And I'm sure this is probably something we will be studying for probably the next couple of years yep. after this, right? Yeah, <laughs> that is true. So. Um, so let's also talk about the, another number that diseases are rated on are, I don't know what the, uh, what the term, the proper term for be, but I, I use morbidity rate or mortality rate, mm-hmm. the number of people that disease kills uh, in terms of the percentage. H- how does this compare to other? Okay. So the term you would normally hear from like an epidemiologist, or I think it's even really started to seep into popular media is the case fatality rate which essentially means you take the number of deaths that you have, you know, officially written down a lot of places. It's, you know, the cause of death on a death certificate has to say, you know, 
COVID-19 or something okay. similar. And you just take the percentage of that out of the cases that have been officially diagnosed. Now, I mentioned before when we were trying to figure out, you know, how many people actually had H1N1, there's a certain percentage of people that, you know, have laboratory confirmed, you know, absolutely are infected with the coronavirus. Um, some countries, some states, some counties only count those. Other places count, you know, if you haven't been tested, but, you know, a doctor is 100% sure, you know, this is what you have. Mm -hmm. Those cases also might count. So what you're doing is you're taking the, the number of deaths just as a percentage of those number of cases that we found. Mm -hmm. And again, the big caveat with these numbers is, you know, those asymptomatic or those mild cases walking around, we don't have a way to account for in right. these numbers yet. Eventually, But, but, that, but that's always the case, right? Right. Okay. This isn't something new. The fact that it's so many people that are experiencing asymptomatic or mild cases may, you know, make these case fatality rates go down a little more than a normal um, re-estimate later does. But we just won't know that for a while. We won't know until there's good serological testing where we can take blood and go back and look to see if you've been infected. If your body has mounted a response, made antibodies, we'll be able to see that for at least a couple of months, maybe a year. Mm -hmm. But the numbers that we're sort of playing with um, for COVID-19 range anywhere from in South Korea, which is essentially the, the benchmark of as good a response to this as you could have had. Because they tested it's, like everybody, right? Right. And uh, the, yeah. the thing that, that floored me with them was going through looking at their testing. They tested a ton of people, but they were so good at being able to test someone and trace, okay, you were here, here, and here. Mm. Here's other people who might have been infected. They found 80% of their cases. They know exactly where they came from, how those people got infected. Wow. That just blew my mind. <laughs> is part of this because of their past responses to like SARS and everything else, do you it think? Is, or it is um, all of the most of the the countries in East Asia that have had experience um, with either SARS or MERS, South Korea in particular, had a patient from I believe Saudi Arabia that sought medical treatment in South Korea before they knew that this this the coronavirus then is what he had. He went to three or four different hospitals, and there were outbreaks in each of those hospitals. Wow, dude. <laughs> So, so they started implementing, you know, a very strict, you know, control plan of if this happens again, we have the playbook ready to go. So for these countries that had this big experience of outbreaks, even if the death tolls weren't huge at the time, they were like, we are going to be prepared next time. Curtis, it's like our d disaster recovery playbooks. They, it looks like they had a playbook around what to do in case they see this. We got to bring IT in at some point. <laughs> <laughs> but it's important to be prepared, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so South Korea was looking at a number of around 1%. Um, I think Germany, that has also had a very good, very quick response, is, is somewhere in that range. Um, where you're looking at big, big problems is a place like the northern regions of Italy, like Lombardy, um, that the cases just compounded so quickly that hospitals couldn't keep up. Their case fatality rate is somewhere between eight and ten percent right now. Which wow. so when you're when you're when you're the U.S. sort of looking, going, how could we how can we do this? How can we prevent this? How can we aim more towards that you know one percent 
end of things. I think in the U.S. right now, it's maybe three or four percent. Um, I would have because the numbers are changing so frequently. I would have to double check. But so what you're really looking for is there there is this underlying, you know, rate of fatality that's going to happen with this outbreak that is tragic, but almost inevitable that there's not a ton we can do about because we don't have treatments yet. Right. What you're trying to avoid is that situation where the the hospitals have just become overrun and can't cope anymore. And that's why shelter in place and other things are so crucial. Right. Right. So that's what we're looking at. You know, we're it's essentially a matter of buying time. You know, we don't know if if sheltering in place will be good enough to eventually decrease the number of people that end up being infected, which, you know, again, it's it's all hand wavy. No one's sure it could be 20 percent of the population. It could be 60 percent. We're just not sure. But the idea is if you can space that out over time, it gives the hospitals time. It gives the manufacturers time to make more masks and gowns and set up hospital beds and make ventilators. And it gives you time to research the vaccines, time to run the clinical trials, to try to be more prepared as other cases continue to come forward. I watched, I, I, a, I watched a thing this morning on uh, CBS uh, Morning, and it, it showed a company who, who makes, they make unique furniture via 3D printing. And they completely, what they did was they designed and are now making face masks mm-hmm. uh, using, using 3D printing. Uh, and, so, and, so, and then they shared the design with everybody else who has 3D printers so that people could make. Uh, yeah, I've, seen, I've seen that. I've seen the designs for the, for the face masks, for pieces for ventilators that may need to be replaced for you know, people right. sharing patterns to sew um, sur- the equivalent of surgical masks. Um, and, you know, that that part has been really heartening of where certain levels of response have fallen down. People have been standing up trying to do it for themselves to do whatever they can. Um, you know, basically, like friends and I have described it as you do all of the things right now, every single thing you could think of that might make a difference, you just do. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if we don't need them later, that's fabulous. You know, that's amazing. Hi, folks. This is W. Curtis Preston again. We're going to end this week's episode here. There was so much content. We actually ended up talking to her for over an hour and a half. So we decided to split it up into three different episodes. This first one was sort of an overview. The the next one we'll talk about specifically why this particular virus is so scary and dangerous. And uh, we're going to talk about the reaction to it. And then the third one will talk about the hope. So thanks for listening, and make sure to come back next week when we talk more with Lindsay Schultz, MD, MPH, and make sure to subscribe so that you can restore it all. There was a file, but I deleted it. Too bad your backup system isn't worth a spade. Finally, I needed your backup. You had a chance to fix it, instead it's all jacked up. See how I'll write on Facebook about you. Don't underestimate the things that I will do. There was a file, but I deleted it. Too bad your backup system isn't worth the space. Store it all.
once it'll be completely done Maybe one day it'll all work out You're sure so